Radio. Let's talk pets. Good day from California. Welcome to the Anything Possible podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Courtney. I'm a veterinary surgeon, former co-host of Pet Talk and Nat Geo Wild, host of Vet Candy Watch, and I'm just an all-around pet lover. As many of you know, this is a podcast where we celebrate the fact that everywhere you look, there is the beauty of the human-animal bond, and that bond influences our everyday lives, and lucky for me, I get to talk to some of the most fascinating and engaging people that help to explore and strengthen that bond. Today, we're going to talk about a topic that resonates with anyone that's ever had a job, currently has a job, or ever hopes to have a job. I would even go as far as to say that if you like being happy, you will enjoy the conversation we have today. But before we get started, I, I just want to ask one basic question. Have you ever had a job that you really loved? Right off the bat, there may be a place, a business, or a certain group of people that come to mind when you think about that job. Now, what about the converse of that? Have you ever had a job that you really hated? What did you hate about it? And did you let your attitude towards your job color your behavior at the workplace? Were you so disgruntled that you just couldn't help but let the people around you know that you wanted out. Well, that happened to me when I was 16. I may not have realized it at the time, but I was a classic disgruntled employee. I was a busboy at a very busy restaurant in Connecticut. I would mainly work Friday nights, Saturdays, and Sundays. This was a high volume and very urbane restaurant replete with celebrities, entertainers, and other social luminaries. This was a job where as soon as I got to work, I hit the door running. I punched in my time clock and I set off to clear tables. I would then march back to the kitchen with these massive trays stacked with dozens of plates and glasses. At the end of the weekend, I would clear $400 cash or more per day, which at the time was a lot of money for me, but I would leave work nearly every day with a scowl on my face. I really didn't like my job. One week, I remember having a post-it note stapled to my time card saying, a smile a day keeps the worries away. I looked closely at my time card and others, and I was the only one with that mood-affirming message. They knew I wasn't happy, but no one asked me why. And to this day, I don't know if it was my maturity level, the people at the job, the work itself, or exactly what it was, but I was rolling in dough, and none of that mattered. It was this experience where I learned something about myself, which was, for me, work is all about love and passion. The money didn't matter. Later that year, I quit the restaurant job and applied for a job at a veterinary hospital where I was stationed in front of a microscope screening dogs and cats for fecal parasites, making far less money. And without question, I was much, much happier. So let's have a conversation about workplace well-being. The conversation that we have today could apply to any job or anyone, but we will analyze happiness in the workplace through the prism of veterinary medicine. Not only because this is the Anything Possible podcast where we talk about all things animal related, but because veterinary medicine writ large is working to better understand how to improve workplace well-being. I personally know many veterinarians that love their job but carry around a heavy amount of mental stress and anxiety. As caregivers, we naturally care for others and frequently neglect taking care of ourselves. This exact same sentiment was thrust into the forefront in 2008 when a large research study on mental health in veterinarians was published. This blockbuster study highlighted the fact that a large proportion of veterinarians were experiencing emotional distress as a direct result of their occupation. Burnout and work-life balance subsequently became trending words aimed to help address this critical issue. The urgency of the present moment is even more acute. When a recent follow-up study on well-being revealed that veterinarians are much more likely than non-veterinarians to think about suicide and 2.7 times more likely to attempt it. Learning to spot signs of distress and manage the emotional demands of the job are tremendously important. And every conversation we have about work-life balance or mental health in the veterinary profession will help shed light on this issue and hopefully help those who need it. To be sure, if you're listening right now and some of the elements in this conversation are triggering for you or you need help, please seek help immediately. I hope you download or listen to this later, but if you need help right now, I encourage you to speak with a mental health professional. 
So let's pause for a brief moment, and when we come back, we are going to talk to a workplace well-being strategist. If you want to feel happier at work, or if you want to feel happy in general, this is the person you're going to want to hear from. I'm super excited to speak to our next guest, and I think you should be too. Stay with me. I'll be back in a moment. It's designerpetsweaters.com. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Large or small, we fit them all. Designerpetsweaters.com Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com Okay, before we get to our exciting guest, I want to be sure to let everyone out there know how to get in contact with me. If you have any questions, thoughts, or topic discussions, you could reach me at Dr. Courtney DVM on Twitter, Instagram, and of course right here on Pet Life Radio. Questions with positivity and love will get answered with priority, but not exclusivity, so I'll pretty much answer anything. As we discussed before the break, we need to advance the conversation of well-being in the workplace and in particularly in veterinary medicine. And so today, I'm joined by Josh Weissman. Josh is a workplace well-being strategist, and he's been a proud member of the veterinary community since 1995. He's been fully immersed in the world of veterinary practice management and ownership since 2009. He's a positive psychology practitioner and co-founder of Flourish Veterinary Consulting. He served the veterinary industry in a variety of roles, ranging from technician to practice manager to hospital owner. Now, his credentials are pretty thorough and bona fide. He, he graduated from the University of Colorado at Boulder. He has a master's degree in applied positive psychology and coaching psychology from the University of East London. Josh has numerous certificates in positive psychology, culture-driven team building, and in developing effective teams. Pulling from those graduate certificates and his master's in applied positive psychology, Josh is now dedicated to helping cultivate environments in which veterinary professionals can thrive. And most importantly, Josh, he's just a really happy guy. So let's welcome Josh to the podcast. Welcome, Josh. Thanks, Courtney. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here, man. Man, I really appreciate this time. You know, you and I had a chance to just speak real briefly and introduce ourselves offline. And man, you know, after listening to you, you know, the knowledge you were dropping in that meeting that I attended was so so powerful that I had to have, I really wanted to have this conversation with you. So I deeply appreciate you being here. Uh, really, the, the pleasure is all mine, man. Thanks for having well, me. No problem, man. Well, let's jump right into it then. Set the scene for me. How did you find yourself in this wonderful profession of veterinary medicine and in this particular tract, you know, in terms of well-being in the workplace? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks for asking. So uh, I, uh, I actually grew up in Wisconsin. I moved to Colorado in the late 90s, and uh, I'd gotten a job at a PetSmart, not working in vet med. I was just working in the store, uh, in the specialty department. I was the guy who was you know, catching, uh, catching the fish for you when you wanted to add some fish to your fish tank. We had a veterinary hospital there. Uh, at that time, they were called PetSmart Veterinary Services. And uh, the, the chief of staff there was this guy. He was <laughs> still one of my favorite human beings on the planet, Dr. Donald Davidson Dodge III. No joke. A lot of alliteration. Yeah, right? Triple D the third. <laughs> that streak has broken, by the way. He did not name his son Donald. <laughs> oh, uh, man. He must, he's going to regret that. I know. Awesome, awesome guy. But as, as if the alliteration of his name you know, wasn't entertaining enough, Donald's six foot seven. He's about as skinny as a pencil. He wore a bolo tie to work every day. I mean, he was just like the epitome of the happy-go-lucky dude. Uh, a, a real character, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely a real character. And, uh, you know, I had these ideas, these visions that maybe I'd want to go to vet school someday. So I, I kind of wandered over to the hospital, and I sat down across the table from Donald, and I said, hey, you know, I'm thinking maybe uh, after I graduate college, I want to go to vet school, but, I, you know, I should probably get some sense of what it's like to work in a veterinary hospital. Can, can I come volunteer here on my days off? And he looked at me and said, you know, I'm really sorry, Josh, but we don't really do the volunteer thing here. But I'll tell you what, I can hire you. 
which I had no idea that, you know, some guy off the street could come and work in a vet hospital. Right, exactly. So I jumped at the opportunity and, and that's kind of how I stumbled into vet med. Uh, he, he hired me, he trained me as a tech assistant and, you know, eventually I started doing tech work and uh, eventually became the technician supervisor there and I was there for a few years. So that's, that's kind of how I got into the field. And so I, I did the tech thing for a number of years at a variety of different practices all around the Colorado Front Range. And then one day I was working at a hospital in Boulder and a practice that I had worked at a few years prior ended up selling. The original owner sold the hospital to two DVMs and a vet tech. And I went, well, that's interesting. Right. So I, I hopped onto Google and did a little searching. And sure enough, in the state of Colorado, a non-DVM can have equity, can have ownership in a veterinary practice. So here I am, you know, I'm a tech. It's, it's uh, you know, the mid-2000s, and I'm making about $9.50 an hour. And so I go, I go uh, walk into the doctor's office, sit down next to one of the associate vets at the hospital that I really like. And I said to her, hey, you know, I, I just learned that a non-DVM can actually have ownership in a vet hospital. Do you want to buy a hospital with me? And she said, sure. And I don't really think she thought I was serious, but, you know, I'll do things like that. I get right. an idea and I decide to dive right in. And so uh, six months later, a lot of work uh, done and, you know, pulling a lot of strings and doing a lot of juggling and making the magic happen. Uh, but I found a way for us to buy a vet hospital. And that's how I got into uh, management and ownership. Wow. Well, wow. I will definitely be a little bit cautious when you come to me with any idea. Just, hey, yes. Courtney, I got an idea. I'll be like on full alert right now. You know, listen, when, when, when it comes to all great journeys, and you've had an incredible journey, when it comes to all great journeys, they usually start with some sort of epic moment of realization, like an, an epiphanal moment, so to speak. Yes. You know, with your journey into workplace well-being, did yep. you have an epiphanal moment? Did you have that moment of realization? And what was that? I sure did, Court. So, uh, you know, I've <laughs> you mentioned in the intro there that I strike you as kind of just an all around happy guy. And and right. that's really been the case for me my whole life. So uh, I was really shocked to find myself in this in this place of, you know, pretty extreme burnout. And it was it was interesting because it was really at the top of my game. I had gotten myself, I had worked up into this, you know, ownership stake and, and then eventually left that practice and got involved in a, another acquisition, a much larger hospital. And I was part owner in this practice. I was the hospital director in this hospital that had, had existed in the community for over 30 years. And, you know, we were kind of turning things around there. And I was getting involved with a, a colleague of mine who had started a consulting company. I had gotten involved at the ground level of a startup consolidating group. I had all of these unbelievable opportunities in front of me. And from the outside, you know, I was living the American dream. I was right, making right. more money than I'd ever made in my life, you know, and had a pathway to just increase that exponentially. Mm -hmm. And I was completely and utterly miserable. You know, and I thought for a long time, I really thought, well, this is just what you do. You put on your big boy pants and you just keep moving forward, right? And then one day, it was uh, an early morning, a, a March day, and I was uh, cooking breakfast for my wife and I, like I do every morning, scrambling some eggs, standing in front of the oven. And I just had this moment where I just stopped and I sat down in the ladle and I just broke down. I mean, like bawling, crying oh, over scrambled eggs in the middle of my kitchen for no reason. I literally had no idea why I was even that upset. And my wife, you know, was sitting behind me and she got up. Oh my gosh, are you okay? Did you burn yourself? And all I could think to say to her was, I, I don't know. I just can't take it anymore. I had completely and totally burned myself out. And so in that moment, that was the, you know, kind of the epiphany for me, man. I, you know, I've, I've known about the challenges that veterinary professionals face for a long time. And for a long time, I thought that well, if you can just grit and bear it, put on a happy face, right? You know, a smile a day, like you said in your intro, right, right. then you can just overcome and you just keep going. And what I realized in that moment that, no, that's, that's really not the case. There's got to be a better way to do the things that we do. There's got to be a better path for all of us in this field so that when we feel called to this worthy work, we can do it in a sustainably fulfilling way. And so, so I decided that I, my next journey in life was going to be to find that way for us, to find that path. So I left everything. I, I left uh, 
my position as hospital administrator. I sold my equity in the practice. I left the consulting company. I left the consolidating group and I went back to school, man. I, I went and got all these certifications and this education. And I've just been on a mission ever since then to find that path for, for all of us so that we can all reach that sustainable fulfillment in our career. That's, That's fascinating stuff. And particularly the, the, the image, the visual that you paint where you're just bursting into tears over something as anodyne as scrambled eggs. It just yeah. lets you know that you are, you know, and, and again, not to use that, like these sort of overly strong terms, but it lets you know you're really at the end, you know, that, that feeling of desperation. So, and it's amazing that something beautiful came out of that, which is that you're now helping others find happiness in the workplace. So I have to ask you then, let's jump right into the controversy. I've heard sure. everybody talk about work-life balance. It's a trending term. It's now part of the zeitgeist of the moment, you know, but, yeah. and then other people talk about integration, uh -huh. uh, integrating into the workplace. Is work-life balance a real thing or do you think it's a completely ridiculous term? I think that's a great question and I'm so glad that you brought that up and I'm going to apologize in advance. I may end up giving you what might feel a little bit like a nebulous and evasive oh, answer. Okay. <laughs> we don't do that here. We don't know. I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Go ahead. But it's my honest truth, man. No, please. I'll tell you what. I, I think that as a concept, the balance that we're trying to strive in our life is absolutely a worthy affair. And I think that that's something that all of us should be pursuing. I'm actually a little bit less caught up in the language as I am in the, you know, sort of the, the foundational philosophy behind it. I think that we have to approach these things from sort of a both and direction. And what I mean by that, when we're talking about something like work-life balance, is that there has to be the perception and the experience of balance or integration or whatever word we want to use, both from the individual perspective and from the organization's perspective. I don't think that we, we have to exist in these you know, polar opposites of uh, you know, my needs and the organization's needs as contrarian or adversarial. I think that there's a middle ground, a tensional middle ground that, that we can reach uh, with all of those. I also think that really what we're talking about when we talk about things like balance and integration and all that is really about energy and identity. So what do I mean by energy and identity? A human being, both physiologically and psychologically, has a limited battery, right? There's only so much energy that you and I can give to an actual physical task, to a mental task, to an emotional task, or a psychological task. And so how we decide to divvy up that energy and then recharge it is absolutely critical. And identity relates to that because when we get caught up in identifying ourselves wholly by one thing, I am a veterinarian, I am a veterinary technician, I am a veterinary manager. If that's the only hat you're ever able to wear, there's no balance there. There's no integration. There's no room for those kinds of languages. And I think we have to embrace the fact that we are whole human beings made up of myriad parts. You know, I am a workplace well-being strategist with the work that I do through Flourish. Right. But I am also a husband. I'm a soccer player. I'm a meditator. I'm a hiker. I'm a gardener. I'm a beekeeper. These are all different things that I identify with. And I have to be cognizant of how I'm committing my energy to each one of those identities. So again, going back to your original question, work-life balance, work-life integration, I honestly, I'll be perfectly honest with you, I don't really care which one of those stands out to you or to other folks or to your listeners, as long as they're honoring how am I spending and recharging my energy and how do I choose to identify myself. And if those things are in balance or if those things are integrated, both from the individual level and the organizational level, man, I think we're all on a good path. That's excellent stuff, particularly because when you break it down in that dichotomous role, energy and identity, and it's not necessarily dichotomous, but those two factions, I want to talk a little bit about energy. You mentioned recharging your battery. How yeah. important is it for you do you think it is for people to decompress from their jobs? And a secondary question, how do you decompress? Like, do you have a guilty pleasure? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I've got quite a few guilty pleasures. Okay. Yeah. This is, this is a, this is a PG-13 podcast. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. All right. No, I'm just kidding. Thank you for kidding. the pre-warning. No problem. 
Yeah, I think um, I think decompression is uh, is incredibly important. I also think pre-decompression is incredibly important. That's, that's like, a term I haven't heard before. Pre-decompression. Yeah. Okay. yeah, I mean it's it, you know I, it's not an official term per se, but what I mean by that is that you know I think we need to be thinking about how we recharge our energy banks, but we also need to be thinking about what deposits are we making into our energy bank accounts. Okay. And deposits are things that we do in advance. So, so for example, you know, I'll do, uh, I've started doing mindfulness practices. I got, actually, I'll tell you about this cause I'm, I'm super geeked out by this device. There's, I don't know if you do any, uh, mindfulness stuff, but I should. well, I'll tell you coming from a background now, especially with a formal education in positive psychology, like one of, one of the things that you see in the research pretty consistently is the power of mindfulness, uh, to enhance resilience and well-being and job performance, all sorts of these wonderful outcomes. So I've known about the science of this for a long time. And I've tried things like, you know, Headspace or the Calm app, things, you know, these guided meditations. And man, I just, I can't do it. I can't okay. do it. I don't know why. I really struggle with it. And then I end up giving it up until I bought this device called a, a Muse headband, M-U-S-E. Okay, so it's okay. this uh, M-U-S-E headband. headband. Yeah. So it's this it's this headband and it's got EEG sensors in it. And so you wear this thing and it it's actually tracking your like real time brain waves. And no then, way. Yeah. So what it enables it to do is it links up with an app on your phone and it gives you biofeedback. So it, it makes these like soundscapes. So you can have like a rainstorm or you can be like beach sounds like the sound of the ocean. And depending on what brain waves you're in while you're doing your mindfulness practice, so if you're in a calm state, the waves will be really calm. You'll hear birds chirping. If you start to get distracted and you get into an active thinking state, the EEG, the muse knows, and all of a sudden the waves will pick up in intensity. The bird chirps will go away. You'll catch yourself. You'd be like, oh, man, I was just thinking about this project I got to work on later. Let me get back to focusing on my breath. It's this amazing device. So I started doing this on a daily basis. I'll tell you, man, that so that's my pre-decompression. This is like a deposit that I make into my bank account every day. Takes me 10 minutes of time, makes a huge difference in the resilience and the focus that I have throughout the day. And I've noticed that it's even helping me after the day is done. My wife comes home from work. I'm just in a slightly better state of mind. I'm more ready to intentionally focus on my relationship with her and the activities that we're doing. So that's what I mean by like pre-decompression. What are the things that we're doing in advance to make deposits into our bank accounts so that we have optimal energy? And then decompression, yeah, absolutely. There's this great practice that I'll teach when I do resilience training with folks. And it's, it's a real simple uh, tactical tool that everybody can use to decompress, moving between the workspace and some other space. And it's what we call a third space ritual. So if you think of leaving work at the end of the day, that's leaving space one. And then after work, you're going to go home. So you're going to a second space, your home space. In between those two spaces, you can build in a ritual that will help you mentally, physically, and psychologically decompress so that you can set an intention for how you're going to enter that second space. So that ritual is your third space. It's the in-between. And what you're going to do in this space is three R activities. You're first going to reflect. And it's very key. It doesn't have to be super intense, but it's just really, really basic questions. What went well today? What did I learn today? And even in the worst days, you'll find something went well. Like, for instance, you survived the day. <laughs> you're right. still there to ask the question. That's something that went well. What did you learn today? So just take a moment. It might be 30 seconds. It might be five minutes, whatever works best for you. Maybe you're going to do this in your car on the way home. Maybe you're going to do it sitting on the bus, maybe on your bike ride home, whatever. But take a moment just to reflect on the day and ask yourself, what went well today? What did I learn? Reflection done. Now you're going to move to your rest state. And by rest, what I mean is you're giving your brain a rest from the, the mindset that you were just in. You know, when we walk into work, we embrace this work mindset, right? There's kind of a, the part of us. We put on the work hat and we get into work mode. That mode is not necessarily beneficial in the next space that you're going in. So what you want to do is you want to give your brain an actual intentional rest from that mindset by 
committing to another activity that has nothing to do with work. And this is deeply personal and, and it varies. There's no right or wrong here as long as it's something that engages your brain and in an activity that forces it into a mindset that's not work related. So it might be do a five minute Sudoku puzzle. So do so Sudoku. It might be sitting down and doing a crossword. It might be reading a chapter of a fun book. It might be watching a TED talk. It might be listening to a podcast. It might be going to the gym. It might be going for a swim. Whatever it is, something that engages your brain in something non-work related. So you've reflected on your day. Now you do your rest activity. Your rest could be a minute. It could be an hour, whatever works for you. Once you're done with rest, now you're going to reset. And by reset, you're going to ask yourself the question, when I enter this new space, how do I want to show up? And if I want to show up that way, how do I need to behave? That's it. And then you go into your next space. Oh, and man, those, those tools are just are incredible because it's applicable to everybody. And particularly yeah. the provocative question, what went well today? Even as you were just asking me that, I started to reflect on my own day. Not it, It's super early, so hopefully there's more things that go well. But I started to reflect on even yesterday. So oh. these tools that you bring up are so useful. And I hope everybody listening will, will just replay this and listen and just say, you know, what went well in my day? They'll give their brain a rest. And then, of course, you know, they'll reset and come into that new space in a much better mindset or whatever mindset you want, right? It's, you walk yeah. into that new space. You can come into that new space in whatever mindset you want. Yes, exactly. Okay. Now, there's some people listening and listening and be like, man, those all sound great. But Josh, I'm in a rut, man. I'm in a rut. I can't get out of it. I mean, I have to give myself a pep talk in the car before I get out to walk into the building. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, what in your mind? And you, you schooled us to the game. It really, and at this meeting, really nicely. You, you talked about a term called learned helplessness. What is learned helplessness, and how does that apply to those experiencing? anxiety in the workplace. Yes. Yeah, so learned helplessness, I can explain that, how it applies specifically to anxiety. I'm, I may not be the most qualified person to answer that question. Okay. Okay. But okay. I'll, do, I'll do my best here. So learned helplessness, let me tell you a little bit about kind of the, the research that uncovered this. So if you take, you know, some sort of a, a, a creature, we'll say, a, you know, a mouse or a rat, and, and you put that creature on a plate, like a metal plate, that's attached to a, a button, a switch that you can click and, and an electrical charge will go across the plate. So we're not talking about something here that's going to actually physically harm this animal, but it's enough of a shock that like, whoa, you know, like the buzzers that people wear in their hands and then as a gag, they'll go and shake your hand and it, For it, sure, it surprises sure. you, right? Yes. So you click the button. Of course, the rat, as soon as it gets this little tiny shock, it scurries off the plate. It wants to escape from this, uh, you know, uncomfortable <laughs> sensation. Well, now you put a box around the plate. You put the rat on the plate. The, all the escape routes are gone. You click the button. The rat's going to try and get away from this uncomfortable experience, but it can't. You click the button. It tries to get away again. Eventually, after enough repetitions, the, this creature figures out, man, I can't get out of here, and it stops trying. Psychologically, this gets interesting when you then remove the box and you click that button, all the escape routes are open. So logically, we would think, well, gosh, of course, it's going to scurry off the plate and get away from this uncomfortable feeling. Well, it doesn't. It just sits there and takes it. That's learned helplessness. That's what it looks like. And what's fascinating and troubling is that any living creature can experience this phenomenon. And my concern is that we see it a lot in the workplace. We see this learned helplessness kind of come about a lot in the workplace and, and in the veterinary workplace in particular, I'll see it. And it's this just kind of overwhelming sense of, I have no power here. I have no say here. Nothing I do or say really matters. This place is just going to be stressful for me day in, day out, no matter what. And so, of course, when you have that experience, consciously or unconsciously, you're going to dread going to work in the morning, right, and it's right. going to be really incredibly difficult to get out of the car and walk through the front door. Totally get that. And that's the kind of thing that I think we really need to try and reverse. And, and there are leadership practices. There's a, there are things that we can build into our daily practice from a leadership perspective, and there are things that we can 
build into our practice as from an individual perspective that can help us kind of overcome that and build not just not sort of eliminate learned helplessness, but actually build a sense of empowerment. Before, Before we jump into those tools, because I, you just gave us some tools earlier, and I think that um, you've got so many tools in your toolbox that I think people need to hear. When you talk about somebody who says in their mind, I have no power here, it's just going to be like this. Do you find that workplace well-being or in the research that you've done, do you find that workplace well-being varies within a veterinary profession depending upon what role you have? Do you find well-being changes depending upon whether you're a practice manager or a veterinarian or a veterinary technician or support, part of the support staff? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I'll tell you about a little bit of research that I've personally done that will will help to answer some of that. You mentioned earlier in your intro, you talked about kind of the rates of burnout and things like compassion fatigue uh, that we're starting to see now that, you know, the industry's waking up and looking at these things among veterinarians. So I came across a study uh, that was published in JAVMA. Published in JAVMA, it was either 2017 or 2018, I don't recall. And it was, they were looking at moral distress, you know, specifically they wanted to see what's the impact when a client can't afford treatment on the veterinarian from a moral distress perspective. One of the things that they measured in that study was self-reported burnout. So they didn't use an actual validated burnout measure. They simply asked the veterinarians, you know, essentially on a scale of one to five, how burnt out do you feel right now? Sample of about 1,100 veterinarians, and they found that 49% of these veterinarians reported a four or a five out of five on burnout. So moderate to significant burnout right now. So I saw that and I was really troubled by that and also not really that surprised. It pretty closely matches what we see in human medicine as well. And uh, so I started looking around to answer the question that you just asked. I, I was curious, is this is this something we just see in veterinarians or, or do we see it in other roles? And I couldn't find anything. So I did my own research. I put out surveys first to veterinary technicians. I got 1,240 responses from veterinary technicians all around the U.S. That's I asked a variety of questions of them related to well-being and career satisfaction and stress management. But I, I did also ask that same burnout question. This is sort of the academic definition of burnout on a scale of one to five. How do you feel you're currently experiencing it right now? And I found out of 1,240 vet techs, including both credentialed and non-credentialed techs, 51% of them said that they were experiencing a four or a five out of five right now. Wow. Yeah, really troubling. So then I, I said, well, gosh, you know, I have this background in management and I know for a fact that veterinary managers experience the highest rates of loneliness at work among all of the roles in the hospital. So I went to veterinary managers and I repeated the study. Now, it's a little harder to get large numbers of veterinary managers. You know, often in a practice that has a manager, they've got 10 or 15 or 20 techs mm -hmm. uh, and one manager. But I did get 161 practice managers to respond from across the country and I saw almost the same exact response. Uh, it was 48% of uh, veterinary practice managers said that they're experiencing a four or five out of five on, on burnout right now. So, so I think that the well-being challenges, to me, it doesn't really surprise me, are pretty consistent across all the roles. The factors that contribute to it probably are different. The things that a veterinarian has to experience in terms of the moral distress because they're kind of the decision makers versus a tech versus a receptionist or a manager probably vary. But certainly it seems like everybody in the veterinary hospital is experiencing these well-being challenges. Among the people at the hospital, they are all experiencing these challenges in a variety of ways. And so the tools to help them may actually differ. Would you agree with that or no? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Well, well, perfect. If they differ, I want to talk to you about some of these tools because, like I said, you've got so much in your armamentarium as far as how to help people that I really want to talk about this. But let's pause for a brief moment, and when we come back, we're going to talk about these tools. Will you stay with me? I will. Excellent. We'll be right back. I have two dogs, Sam and Bailey. Both are golden retrievers. Poor Sam, he was a mess. Always itching, his paws were soaking wet all day from just constant licking. He had bald spots on his back. I just don't like putting shots and steroids into your dog all the time. 
D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Dynavite is nutrition. Probably two weeks after he started Dynavite, I started seeing great improvements. And today, 99% of his issues are non-existent. It's amazing stuff. Since Bailey has been 12 weeks old, he's been a Dynavite dog. And he has zero issues today. He won't eat his food without Dynavite. When I get out the Dynavite, my dogs actually salivate. Like I'm getting them a treat. They drool over it. Dynavite is the best thing you can do for your dog. You won't believe how happy your dog will be. I get my Dynavite from D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com We are having an absolutely fascinating discussion with Josh Weissman, who's a positive psychology strategist and just all-around happy guy, but he essentially is so critical and so important in helping improve workplace well-being and improving positivity. And we've been having an a great conversation about having, you know, how do you resist the, some of the stressors at work, some of the things that really cause you to feel the pressures at work. He talked a lot about pre-decompression and decompression and gave us some great tools. But now I want to talk to you, Josh, if you don't mind, about some of those tools going forward. Because when we talk about, hey, listen, this is how veterinary technicians feel, veterinarians, practice managers, support staff, they all can feel different pressures in their job and it causes them to feel, hey, I may not be able to get out of this rut. So what I wanted to ask you is, how do you assess, how do you assess well-being, number one, and what do you think is a good tool to help bring up people's well-being in the workplace? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks. So the assessment phase, um, I'm, I'm a huge advocate, especially coming from, uh, you know, business management and ownership background. I'm a huge advocate of, uh, you know, you get what you nurture and what you measure is nurtured. You know, as a hospital owner, I, man, I'll tell you, Courtney, I had like spreadsheet after spreadsheet to, you know, to measure all the important KPIs and financial metrics, uh, you know, around the, the health of the business. And I knew my numbers inside and out. And so that made me a really successful business owner. However, it did not make me a very successful human leader because I wasn't actively, intentionally, and routinely measuring the human experience in my workplace. And so I'm a big advocate of finding ways to measure the actual human experience. Let's measure the well-being of our people. Now, that's not necessarily the same thing as saying, what's our revenue? What's the number of transactions? Divide those numbers to get a hard number. It's not necessarily the same thing as pulling a blood sample and looking at, you know, ALT and ALKFOS and BUN and creatinine. Which is kind of what we're just trained to do. That's just the way we think. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We have to get a bit more creative sometimes on how we measure those things. So the nice part about that, though, is that there are tools. There are tools out there that can help us get sort of a, uh, you know, a consistent finger on the pulse of how our people are doing. And some of those tools are technological. There's digital platforms, uh, you know, things that we can implement that sort of ask our team routine questions and have them respond to those so we can get scores. There are tools that I utilize through the work that I do uh, with my consulting company that are a little bit more psychometric tools. So tools developed from research in positive psychology and related fields. So there's survey tools like that that I can use to sort of quantify the well-being Within a particular workplace, I have a variety of those tools that I'll use. Would you be okay with that term coach? If somebody says, hey, I'm using a digital platform, but I also need a coach, would you be? Would you consider yourself like that? Oh, yeah. That's, that's a big part of what I do, actually. Excellent. Which, Excellent. Yeah, which leads to the next part, and it's related to the measurement thing. You asked, uh, you know, how do, how do we measure this? How do we get a pulse of this? But then also, what are some things that we can do to kind of help elevate these things? And that's the, you know, that's the perfect transition to, you know, I provide leadership coaching because I think that the biggest conduit for these positive changes within an organization is going to come from a positive leadership approach. 
And part of being a positive leader is actively and routinely measuring the pulse of your people, actively and routinely having an awareness of what's going on with them, how they're doing, where they're succeeding, what are their superpowers, where do they need help and support, where are they struggling, what can you do to support them there? And so, you know, that's in part taking a coaching approach, having routine one-on-ones with everybody on the team, but that's also, you know, implementing these kinds of measurement tools across your practice on a regular and routine basis to show your team that how you feel here is important. And that's a big part of it. You know, I think that one thing that all of us can do, regardless of the position that we're in, is bring a positive leadership approach to our work. And so for the individual who's really, truly struggling and in a rut, they probably need help a bit beyond what they can feel empowered to do on their own. And and if somebody's You know, you said it as well earlier. So if you're really, really struggling, if you're really in a bad way, you got to find some sort of supportive help, whether it's social support or from a professional. But you've got to get that help because, you know, we all get in those moments where we can't pull ourselves up. And I'll tell you, when I when I was in that bottom moment myself, I didn't get out of it by myself. I got out of it with the help of a psychology coach. I got out of it with the help and support of my unbelievably loving wife. I got out of it with the help and support of, you know, some people in my life who really care a lot about me. We don't get out of these things on our own. And so we need to get help. But if we're not in that really bad place and we're just kind of struggling, we can pull ourselves up by helping others. There's a lot of research that shows that when When we reach out and help uplift others, it doesn't just benefit them, it actually benefits us. And so I'm a huge advocate of anybody in any role in a practice can bring positive leadership to their work. You don't have to be the manager, you don't have to be the lead doctor, you don't have to be the medical director to be a leader in your practice. You mentioned positive leadership. In your title, you are positive psychology practitioner, positive psychology strategist. And so the reoccurring motif refrain is one of positivity. Yes. What is your definition of being a positive psychology practitioner? And then how important or what role do you think positive psychology plays in the veterinary workplace? Oh, man, I think it plays an unbelievably huge role. I think it's incredibly important. Some people are listening right now saying, I don't know if I've ever heard of a positive psychology <laughs> practitioner. What yeah. the heck is that? What the heck is that? Yeah. So so positive psychology is essentially the, the science. It's So it's applying the scientific method to uncovering what contributes to human flourishing, human well-being, and human thriving. Wow. Yeah. And really so, nice. so it, Yeah. So it's a scientific endeavor. You know, we... We apply the same kind of research approaches that any other scientific field applies. We we have peer-reviewed journals, you know, published papers. Uh, it's all research-based stuff. What I do as a positive psychology practitioner is I try and take that science, what the science is showing us contributes to thriving as individuals and in work, and I try and help veterinary professionals apply that. So that's kind of that's kind of the definition of what it is, why it's so important. Uh, you know, kind of speaks to a little bit of the definition. This whole concept of positivity is unbelievably important and can feel a little bit loaded. And so one thing that I want to recognize is that when I'm talking about positive psychology and positivity, I'm not talking about put on a smile and grin and bear it. I'm not talking about a Pollyanna, you know, or toxic false approach to life. Yeah, kumbaya, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're we're not we're not all striving to sing kumbaya around the fire. Uh, you know, all day long. That's not a normal human experience. I might even call that psychosis, to be honest. (laughs) That's a good point. You know, in the work that we do as veterinary professionals, man, sometimes this work is really hard, like really hard. I wouldn't even take away the sometimes, yeah. Yeah, I mean, often, right? It's it's rare to have a day that doesn't challenge us psychologically and emotionally. 100%. Yeah. So when I'm talking about positivity, I'm not talking about eliminating those things. I'm talking about actually embracing them. I'm talking about recognizing that those things are normal, valid parts of our experience, and we can approach them, persevere through them, and learn from them in productive ways. That's the kind of positivity that I'm trying to 
to bring to the field. And I think, man, I think we need it. I think this is a prescription that all of us desperately need in this field. Yeah, I, I think we all desperately do too. And that's part of the reason that I'm talking to you, not only because you're an excellent speaker, but because these tools, I think, I actually try to practice implicitly just on a daily basis without realizing that there are actual bona fide terms and, and an entire science, an entire branch of psychology that's fueling these behaviors. And so some people are saying, okay, this is great. I want to find the superpower in every person that works with me. It's wonderful. How do I do that? Are there, you know, I've got these Myers-Briggs tests here in front of me. I've got these other tests here. I've got these anonymous surveys. I even have a anonymous box that people can put comments into in my office. Is that all I need to do? You know, what else is there to do? What would you say to them? Yeah, what I would say to them is that you uh, you can't do too much. <laughs> okay, got it, got it. Yeah. Use everything in your toolbox. Everything, use everything in your toolbox. Get comfortable with the discomfort of experimentation. Try different things to see what works for you. Try different things to see what works for the people that you're, you're, you're trying to connect with. Some things will work, some things won't. You know, get comfortable with experimenting and trying different things. I'll tell you, though, at the foundation of all of that is intention. And intention is an active form of energy. It is not passive. When I was a manager, I, you know, man, I created a, an employee handbook just like every other practice. And, and in there, we had our open door policy. And I even literally at one point physically removed the door from my office. Look, this is my open door policy. Wow. Literally and figuratively. <laughs> yeah. Open door policy. yeah, yeah, exactly. But the thing is, man, is that a, a, an open door policy is so much more than a passive black and white words on a piece of paper and the door removed from the door frame. Open door policy is something that people have to feel. And I never invited them into my office on a regular basis and said, hey, let's sit down. Let's talk about, tell me about a time this past week that you felt like really energized in your work. What was going on there? What were you doing? What was the activity? How did you feel? What were you thinking? Man, I never sat down and had those conversations with people. I never invited people into my office on a regular routine basis and said, hey, how are you doing? And then just shut my mouth and let them talk. So it's the difference in intention. It's the difference between being passive. I've got a box where people can anonymously put their things in. I've got an open door policy in my handbook and being active and actually going out there and doing everything you can to formally find out, learn about the people that you're trying to connect with and then use that knowledge to support them and encourage them to learn the same things about you. You know, this is a two way street. And that's an excellent point because when you talk about being active, you say, all right, this is good. This is good. I'm headed in the right direction. I'm going to bring people in. I'm going to invite them in. I want to hear what they have to say. But then I also want to utilize anonymous surveys because not everybody's going to okay. feel comfortable talking to me. So when I have these surveys, I want to find out, are there things that I should be looking for on a survey that you think are very useful? Essentially, like you said – Having a two-way street on these surveys basically saying, hey, I want to know how you feel at work, and then I also want you to tell me how you think work is going. So do you think that there are some things to look out for on the survey that say, all right, this is a good survey I could use at work? I guess I'm a bit unclear, Courtney. Can you help me understand what you mean by are there good things to look for in a survey that says for, for, one of for instance, it, for instance, you're looking at a survey or you're looking at a tool, an assessment tool, and you're saying to mm -hmm. yourself, I'm not sure this assessment tool gives me an accurate picture of yeah. what well-being is at, at work. As an example, some right. people are familiar with Kersey or some people are familiar right. with Myers-Briggs or uh, right. a, you right. know, a disc, and they're saying – I don't know which which tool is the best tool to use to assess workplace well-being. So I'll tell you, I'm a bit of two minds on this. There's one part of it, like if you're really genuinely wanting to measure and quantify well-being, I think you need to be a little bit careful about what you're asking, what what kind of survey tool you're using. I tend to lean towards you know, strongly recommending tools that have been validated by research that, you know, have some research backing, some science backing behind them. And so, so the survey tools that I use when I'm working with a practice to kind of help them get those numbers, right? What, what is the, the well-being numbers here? What is the current status? Or when I'm working with a practice that I'm consulting with and we want to, you know, kind of get a baseline and then apply some interventions within the culture and then sort of measure what's the impact. 
I have some very, very specific science-based, evidence-based tools that I'll use to measure those numbers. The other mind says, you know, not everybody's going to spend hours and hours and hours researching what's the best tool to use to get to the numbers. Not everybody's going to spend the time and money reaching out to Josh at Flourish Veterinary Consulting to come in and do these things for him. And I get that. And so the other mind of me says, you know, man, whatever tool gets you to have a productive conversation with your people, that's the tool to use. All right. That's the tool to use. I know that a couple of people have reached out talking about their particularly practice managers, hospital owners, veterinarians who own their own hospitals. And they're wondering if I right now it's just so difficult because I wear so many hats. I'd like to improve workplace well-being. I'd like to be a good doctor. I'd like to go home. As you had mentioned earlier in in your intro, you, you have many hats. And they say this would be another hat to wear besides Flourish Veterinary Consulting because obviously you'd be an awesome tool. Are there other tools outside programs that they can help use? For instance, some people are familiar with an EAP program. Are you a fan of those and what are those exactly? Yeah, so EAPs I'm a huge fan of. So EAP, uh, as you, you probably know, stands for Employee Assistance Program. So an EAP is a very inexpensive benefit. It's an insurance type benefit, often tied to uh, insurance programs that a practice can offer to all the employees. The way that it works is you subscribe to it, you pay a fee based on the number of employees you have, and then every employee in your business has access to the EAP. The cost for these things are like pennies a day, literally pennies a day. It's really, really inexpensive. The benefit or potential benefit of them are exponential. So most EAPs, one of the the key sort of resources that they offer to teams are confidential access to mental health resources like counselors, therapists, things of that nature. So commonly you'll see an EAP will offer employees, uh, you know, up to six visits a year for a counselor. Again, it's totally confidential. So the employee doesn't have to come to you as the owner or you as a manager and say, I'm struggling, I need help. They call a 1-800 number on their own from work, from home, on the weekend, doesn't matter. The EAP sets them up with a counselor. The practice owner, the practice manager, your team members, nobody ever knows that you've used that resource. Really wonderful resource for pennies a day. I mean, I personally think every single veterinary hospital should have an EAP program for their employees. But they're not just, uh, you know, these mental health services. Often EAPs will include like legal services. So access to an attorney for legal questions, financial services, access to a financial planner for, you know, financial related questions. And that financial well-being component is a huge part of what contributes to our challenges. So I think EAPs are great. I'll yeah, tell you one please, thing. Please I w- go ahead. Yeah, if you don't mind, I want to I want to interject because you made a really interesting comment, and it's an objection that I hear all the time. Man, Josh, this stuff sounds great, but gosh, it's just another hat I got to wear. I don't have the time for this. I'm I'm too busy putting out all these other fires. I want to tell you about a piece of research that really blows my mind. So I talk a lot about this idea of you know having these conversations, being intentional, taking an active approach to checking in on your team and offering support. And, One common way to do that is having regular one-on-one meetings with everybody on your team. And in a particular piece of research done through um, related to the field of positive, what we call positive organizational scholarship, uh, these these regular meetings were implemented. I apologize, my yellow-nipped Amazon is in the background (laughs) waking up. It sounds like life in the background. I love yeah. it. But anyway, what they did was they went into organizations across 16 different industrial uh, contexts, including human health care. Okay. And they okay. implemented a system of routine monthly uh, one-hour one-on-ones with every team member. So the manager sat down, followed a, a very particular program, a very particular checklist that was a collaborative, back-and-forth, two-way one-on-one program. Now, when I talk to veterinary practice managers and practice owners and medical directors about doing a one hour a month with everyone on your team, one-on-one, like you should see the looks on their faces. They're like wide-eyed. Yeah. Are you kidding me? There's no way I have time for that. Here's what blows my mind. They implemented these programs over 18 months. And at the end of the 18 months, one of the things that they measured was the amount of time that the managers had as compared to before implementing this program. 
And implementing this program, the average manager found that they actually increased their free time by almost a full day a month. So having one-on-one meetings with every member of their team once a month increased their free time by almost a full day every month. Why? Well, because when you're having regular routine check-ins, everybody has role clarity. They know exactly what's expected of them and they go and do it. It decreases the interruptions. You don't get the constant knock, knock, knock on your door anymore because you've already had those conversations. Everybody knows what's going on. It frees up time for proficiency. It makes people more productive. It makes you more productive. It's not about, do I have time for this? It's about what time am I wasting by not doing this? (laughs) So I, I think these things are absolutely critical. Efficiency and being productive is what almost every veterinary practice is about or they should be about. And so for people listening right now, because, you know, as veterinarians, we walk into a veterinary hospital and we have almost instinctual an instinctual process on how to see clients and and see and help patients and help and basically save lives and treat lives. But we don't, a lot of veterinarians don't know exactly how does consulting even work? Like, how do you start the process and what does the process look like? Really succinctly, if someone wants to utilize Flourish Veterinary Consulting and say, you know what, all these tools he mentioned I mean, they sound great, but I can't implement them. I really need the help of a consulting service. Yeah. service. Could you just break down really quickly just how that would work? Yeah. So our approach is very much like how you as a veterinarian would approach, uh, you know, a, an ADR dog coming through the door. Right. So the first thing we're going to do is an assessment. We call it the discovery phase. And we're going to use a lot of these tools that we've talked about today. So we'll do some, you know, formal measurement. So we have a pretty extensive survey tool that everybody on the team takes and it gives us, it allows us to quantify. It's our blood work. Along with that, we also have conversations. So in smaller practices, we'll actually sit down and do these one-on-one meetings with every single person in the hospital. If it's a larger practice, we'll do focus groups, but we're going to spend time in your practice, actually getting to know you, your team, how everything flows, and really get a good image of what the culture is like. And then from that, now we've got done our assessments, we've done our blood work, right? We, we can now start to develop a plan. And so that's what our next phase is, which is our, our planning phase. And that's where we'll take all the information that we've gathered through discovery, and we'll take all of the knowledge and expertise that we have from all of this research, and we'll say, you know, in your practice, we think this is probably the best place to start. And then from that, we move to our path to flourishing phase. And that's where we're, you know, we're supporting you, man. We're walking alongside you and we're providing the coaching, the leadership coaching. We're, we're helping to implement those uh, targeted interventions to help elevate you and your team to their best possible selves. And uh, we're helping you kind of create a well-being team internally and helping support them and in elevating the day-to-day experience within your practice and and building this positive culture into uh, your day-to-day practice. And we walk alongside you through that whole process, uh, often for a year or more, so that you don't have to wear all the hats and have all the knowledge and do this all on your own. You've got support through the whole process. Listen, you know, pet parents come to us because we're an expert, you know, in that field. They, they're looking for someone with that knowledge base and they're looking for somebody to help. And veterinarians and veterinary practice managers, support staff, all of us need to also utilize that same approach. Go to the experts, it, particularly if you're having trouble, you know, at, with workplace well-being or just well-being in general. I think utilizing the help of an expert is such awesome advice and uh, you know these tools that you brought up today of course we we could go on for hours because i know that you've got so much there and so much knowledge to impart but i I really want to thank you for just sharing some of it Uh, just a small sliver of what you have to offer and the knowledge that you have to help people increase positivity in their life yeah, it's my pleasure, man. And, and, and I just want to thank you, Courtney. I got to tell you, your, uh, your passion for positivity in general and just what you bring to the table and the energy that you have, it's contagious, man. And I'm grateful for you. Oh, thanks, man. That makes me feel good. And like I said, I part of me is like, man, he's so good at being so positive. But on the other hand, I know it's genuine and you know, it's sincere. So thank you again. And if you don't mind, man, I'd love to at some point do a round two. Would you ever come back? 
Oh, absolutely. It'd be my awesome. pleasure. Awesome. Thanks again. And everyone, this has been absolutely fantastic with Josh Weissman. Everybody, check him out. Check out Flourish Veterinary Consulting. Rewind, pause, listen to these tools that he gave because they're all absolute gems. And I hope everybody can hear this and help improve positivity in their own lives. All right. Well, that's it. And for the next episodes, do not forget to tune in. And just remember, there's nothing stronger than the human-animal bond. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.